It says recording in process on all three of them now. So that's good. Uh, we are having technology problems. Let's call IT. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> Welcome to Touchpoint, a podcast dedicated to discussions on digital marketing and digital patient engagement strategies for hospitals, healthcare systems, and physician practices. In this podcast, we'll dive deep into a variety of topics on the digital tools, solutions, strategies, and processes that are impacting our industry today. We hope to share a lot of great information and have fun along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Reed Smith and Chris Boyer. All right, here we are, episode 59. Thanks again to Michael Vinsky for the intro. Appreciate all his work. You can visit him online and learn a little bit more about him at michaelvinsky.com. And uh, today, something a little bit different, uh, kind of special. Got uh, more than one co-host. Is it more than what is three? Is that do you still co-host or how try-host? That, a try-host, yeah. Try-hosting. I am joined as always by my typical co-host, Chris Boyer, on the other side of the microphone. And um, you can find out more about Chris and I and everything that we're doing over at Touchpoint.health. But today we're joined by John Mason, former guest of the show, former interview on the show. Hey guys. Uh, probably if I was smart would have looked up what episode that was 382 B now yeah there you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah there you go when in doubt make it so up there you go but uh, ha- happy to have John you can learn more about him and again we'll have all this in the show notes mm-hmm. at um, his website John you want to throw that out oakhornsolutions.com uh, or you can find me at johntmason.com John and I have known each other for some years as he was the CIO of a healthcare system that I uh, had an opportunity to work with. So his background is on the ITNS side. And as you might conclude by the title of said episode you've now downloaded and are listening to, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the CIO world and the chief marketing or kind of marketing head world and kind of how those come together today. Before we get going, Chris, uh, special thanks to one of our sponsors, uh, Loyal Health. Uh, so Loyal has an AI-driven platform that provides healthcare systems with the tools they need to amplify patient feedback and guide patients through their digital journey. That's right. With their multidiscipline team of engineers, marketers, data scientists, Loyal partners with some of the nation's leading health systems to promote patient loyalty through a smarter digital patient experience. They do a lot of really neat things over there. Mm-hmm. Uh, we encourage you to go check out them. Visit their website at loyalhealth.com. Be sure to tell them that we sent you. And while you're there, schedule a demo for any of the neat things that they're rolling out. That's right. So, Reed, what's great about having John on the podcast today is because John himself is about to launch a podcast. Isn't that right? I am. That's right. I am. So, I'm going to be launching the Connected Hospital podcast. And really the goal of the the podcast is to bring folks to the table who uh, have experience in a lot of the different areas where in a hospital system today, uh, we're connecting technology and connecting it to patients and physicians and other health systems. I'm going to bring folks of all different backgrounds uh, and hopefully some interesting topics and learn a few things along the way. You brought up a really great term that I've heard a lot, which is the connected hospital. You know, much as we do in many of our podcasts, John, we really need to kind of set the table and explain to people what that actually means, because that term can mean a lot of different things. What is a connected hospital? What does that mean? That's a great question. And, and I get that a lot, actually. When you're a CIO and you're talking to your customers, a lot of times, we just need to be more connected. And so often that's the same question I ask. Well, that depends on what you mean. But a connected hospital is connectivity inside that hospital between departments, um, you know, between when you're caring for a patient, uh, you can connect and request labs and request x-rays and request different things within the hospital. That's a little bit more of the old school side of things. Today, connectivity really means transferring information about patients between the hospital, between their physician practices that, you know, the practice they go to with different agencies that need the information with the insurance companies, et cetera. And so really a truly connected hospital is that connectivity between all of the different people that are involved in the care. What's really unique about it though, in today's world is we're finally getting to the idea of the connected patient. 
And hopefully we'll talk a little bit about that today and some of the things that are coming. But it's no longer just all the people on the outside. It's the patient too, which is what makes it great. So this is more than just having free Wi-Fi at your campus, right? <laughs> That's right. Let's yeah. hope so. Yeah. Guess Wi-Fi network. Yeah. <laughs> Let's back up a little bit. So, John, you, you have been involved in the healthcare uh, in predominantly hospital space for, for how long? Probably 20 years, uh, 20-something years, yeah. And all that time kind of in the ITNS space, I guess, it, it, if mm-hmm. you're going to frame it that way. So let's talk maybe a little bit about what was the Connected Hospital 20 years ago. And so we can kind of set the stage a little bit for yeah. you know, the, the evolution of this. You know, So we didn't just all of a sudden wake up one day and decide technology was something we should have in hospitals. We've always had it. It's just evolved over the years, right? So when you got into this space, what what was connectivity? Years ago, and this would even be before I was involved, the original idea behind, quote, connectivity really just had to do with connecting a hospital and submitting claims to an insurance company, right? So the idea was you come in and you have a service done at the hospital. The hospital needs to be paid for those services from an insurance company. Literally, it used to be things were done on paper and mailed. And then they introduced this idea of of actually sending those claims electronically. And, and that was a big part of the connectivity. The second big part years ago, and unfortunately, it still exists quite a bit today, was around the telecommunication side. There used to be this thing called a fax machine, you know, and uh, believe it or not, that's how a lot of connectivity happened. You printed things, you faxed it to a physician, a physician faxed things back. And so really, in some way, connectivity was all about the business office, right? It really had more to do with the financial side of hospital care than it had ever to do with patient care. So this is what, like 20, 15, 20 years ago mm-hmm. when this was all happening. And even at that time, you know, when you're talking about fax machines, was there any concern? Was HIPAA a thing back then? Because it, it certainly that was kind of a newer concept, right? Well, it was definitely newer. I can't quote you the date, the year that the HIPAA or Health Insurance Portability and mm-hmm. Accountability Act came out. I can't remember right now. But there wasn't a lot of concern about it 20, 25 years ago like there is today. Primarily because you weren't really trans information that could hurt someone. You were transmitting their name and their procedure, but really a lot of HIPAA came about when the AIDS epidemic began um, and some things like that. And they started wanting to protect people's mm-hmm. privacy so that it couldn't be misused. 1996, just FYI. Thank you for that. Uh, the research team got to that quickly. That's good. <laughs> Back then... Th- there was obviously some concerns. You didn't want to send faxes all over or send them to the wrong place, but it wasn't it wasn't a primary concern that it's become today. I mean, it, it really truly is almost central to much of whatever you do in a hospital. And that kind of makes sense because as we progressed over the years, we started to tra- use digital to transmit more information and business intelligence in our organizations have grown substantially since then. I mean, I got into the healthcare, what, 10 years ago? Reed, that's about the time you got in, maybe, right? About about a decade, a little bit longer? Yeah, I've been in about 15, actually 15 exactly. Because I remember when I started, just EHRs were just starting to be a thing where people were really earnestly talking about them. And I remember one of the earlier hospitals that I was uh, doing some work with, they were talking about they were going to go paperless, right? They're going to go put everything into electronic health record. And what that meant is they hired a bunch of interns to go take all the paper copies and scan them into PDF and upload them to their EHR at the time. It wasn't discrete data. It was just a picture of something that was handwritten. The reason maybe uh, we weren't as concerned with HIPAA because we were using fax machines, but there wasn't an alternative. Like the fact you had to do that, right? Like there, there wasn't really a way around that. And if you did it wrong, I mean, how many people are really going to see that data? The only options you really had were, were a courier. You, you handed it to a guy and he put it in his truck and drove it across town to whoever needed it. There was less likelihood that someone could get it and use it illegally. I mean, it still happened, 
but not to the extent it does now. Don't forget the pneumatic tubes, though. That's right. Hey, we're still putting those in. Well, the last one of those I saw was uh, so they could send tissue samples to the uh, lab, you know, or to the uh, pathologist. Well, let me tell you, that's not all that gets sent through those things, by the way. So you have to write policies and rules in hospitals of what you're not allowed to send in the tube as a joke. We have got to get a database of just that policy from across the country. That would be awesome. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) What is allowed in the pneumatic tube and what's not? Trust me, there's some strange things that fly around those tubes. That's privacy. That's kind of what privacy was, right? What about security? Was that, is that something different back in the day? It is. And, and security, of course, you know, what we think of security today, we think in terms of keeping people out of your system, um, making sure that the information that electronic is encrypted, right? So that if it is captured, it's not discoverable. They can't decrypt it and uh, use it for whatever way. So that's a something that that is something that often confuses people. They think in terms of security and privacy is the same thing, and they're not really the same thing. Privacy is how you go about ensuring that you don't share the information when you shouldn't. Security has more to do with the system how you keep people out of the system and how you make sure that if they do get in, they can't do anything with what they find. What was security back in the day besides a guy on a golf cart, like in the parking lot or whatever? (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) It it was, you know, patching a machine every once in a while, um, maybe a firewall later times, but there wasn't a whole lot. Well, that's because the systems were discrete, right? I mean, like you had your different departments that weren't connected. The call center data was in its own separate database on its own (laughs) separate server somewhere. And then you go across over to where the claims team were on a whole different server themselves and they weren't talking to each other. And that data didn't share and didn't connect and, and didn't relate. So, yeah. So it's easier to be secure, I guess, because you're, you're just disparate systems across the, you know, you just have to have a strong lock on the door. Pre-internet, remember, right? I mean, the idea that when you were transmitting something long time ago, you either had dedicated circuits that went from one place to the other. You certainly didn't have this, this concept of the internet, and everybody roaming around trying to get into servers. I mean, it just it was a, it would have been a much more focused and difficult thing. You would have had to come to your location and try to get in versus doing it from you know across the world like you're doing today. So, was the skill set of a CIO or director of technology, depending on you know the size of organization you're in, I guess, back in the day, was that skill set different? Oh, very much so. Most older CIOs, folks that are, you know, probably retired now would have been very good at business office functions. In fact, they would have called it data processing, right? The idea there was you were processing data. It wasn't even information technology because really they were just taking data in and processing it out. You know, um, so they were really good at the financials, the general ledger. You know, those those guys would have been um, really excellent at how the business office works. How does revenue cycle work? But this idea of at the bedside technology and the EHR at any depth was was not as common. Yeah, because the EHR back then was just something to process claims, right? I mean, that's right. The EHR wasn't originally designed as a way its primary function wasn't to make patient care better. It was to help you process claims. And that's why there was such a resistance in the physician community because they didn't really care about that part. They want to take care of patients, not process claims. That's the hospital's job. So I guess it's fair to say then, historically, there's more overlap between technology and finance, whereas maybe now there's more overlap between technology and you know patient care even. Yeah. In fact, you know, a lot of the business office rev cycle, a lot of that work is, um, I, I almost want to say, and I'm sure there's CIOs out there that argue with this, but it, it's much more on autopilot, right? It, it kind of just works now. And so now your function, your difficulty and your skill set has to be in the front end technology, the at the bedside technology. Well, I think that's a good part for us to kind of shift to where it is now, because I would say that you're, you're probably right. But like most technologies, as the technology becomes more mature and adopted, it eventually does become autonomous, so to speak. So your point about revenue cycle management, I mean, there's still some skill and art around that, obviously. And you of need, you need a course. team to support that. But really, let's talk about where technology and where where CIOs today now are focusing their efforts. 
what you're going to find in most health systems is there's going to be a core I kind of equate it to the 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 hull of the ship and that's that's usually your EHR right it's that core piece of functionality that frankly operates most health systems today. Most of that core functionality now falls off the EHR. So your billing often comes from there. All your rev cycle work, your clinical work, all of that tends to focus on that EHR. So kind of think of it as the the whole of the ship. But now there's so much more, and I kind of equate them to the barnacles that you had on to the bottom of the ship. There's all these other pieces of functionality. You think of things like artificial intelligence, Internet of Things, you know, you hear that term a lot. And I'll even say, for example, biomed, that was an area that I took over as a CIO was biomed, which is, those are your devices like your IV pumps and your uh, EKG machines. Things that used to just be this standalone device are now connected to the network. And so they're all now part of that interconnected hospital. Well, let's let's first, before we go to those barnacles, let's talk about the ship itself. Because the EHR has shifted or changed. I mean, I would, maybe there are some people, including the CEO of my health system, who say, you know, EHRs aren't changing enough. But they've changed from being just a claims management now, right? Oh, they have. Absolutely. Assess the state of EHRs today. So, you know, EHRs have progressed and really a lot of that was forced enhancement over the past five or six years. During the um, Accountable Care Act or Obamacare, you know, there was a big portion of that called the the High Tech Act, which forced uh, hospital systems that were reluctant to spend their money or put their effort into enhancing their technology they kind of forced them there. And it was a carrot and a stick approach. And it started out with a carrot, which is if you would do these things and start getting better utilization of your EHR, you'll get some money to help you pay for it. It's gone to a stick now. And so now if you're not doing it, you're going to start losing a percent of your revenue from the government. This is meaningful use stuff, right? Correct. This is called meaningful use. That was always the big talk, right? Several years ago was like, ooh, ooh, let's, let's do these things. You know, so we can get this extra money. What I think the original reaction to that was, was, oh, great. Now we've got to go out and start forcing people to use something they don't want to use just so we can make some money or we can get paid for it. This doesn't make a lot of sense. Interestingly, in a lot of cases now, the system is actually really reaping the benefits of that because what it forced CIOs to do and, and chief medical information officers, CMIOs to do is start figuring out how they could get that utilization of that system. And when they were getting that utilization, it was then forcing and in highlighting or surfacing all these new capabilities that an EHR could provide that the physicians and the clinicians never really thought about before. Um, And suddenly, uh, I saw this transition where, in fact, Reed and I worked together five or six years ago when we were going through some of this. And, you know, we had physicians that would say, I'm going to retire. I refuse. Um, well, interesting, none of those physicians retired, at least not, <laughs> not because of the EHR. And now they're some of the biggest advocates and they have grown to expect it to do more. So an EHR today isn't just capture some basic information about a patient so we can get billing. It's helping make decisions uh, d- called decision support. Um, it's helping make sure that we reduce our errors in medication administration. So You know, we give out medications to patients every year and the number of times that a human can make a mistake, it now goes down dramatically because the system is catching those things for us. Um, So there's just all kinds of ways that an EHR has evolved into becoming really central to the care of a patient. The way you painted the picture, John, it seems like, you know, it's rosy and every every physician and all the support staff really like their EHRs. I think there's still a little bit of reluctance, if not reticence, about using EHR in the, in the health systems today. What, what do you count? Why is that happening? It's typically in the EHRs that haven't gone through what I would call an optimization. The EHR companies designed these health records, these electronic health records, to meet some base functionality. The The, the problem is... Every physician practices and thinks differently. And so early on, you would deploy a system. um, It would be upgraded to the latest, but it really didn't meet their workflow. So what you have to do, what you had to do on the back end of meaningful use is then do optimization. So that's to come back now and say, okay, how do we modify this system to make it better? Frankly, there's not a lot of great EHRs that have got it all figured out. And it's because there's 
there's three big EHR companies plus a bunch of other ones. And those three big ones have got to meet the demands of the broad audience and they can't, it's harder to customize it down to very specifics. I think that's part of the reluctance. And secondly is it takes more time. But what I always remind clinicians was this was never promised as a time saver. This was promised as a patient saver to give you better patient care. And I guess architecting a solution to meet the lowest common denominator, that's why you, you hear about a lot of these organizations that when they go down you know, a particular EHR journey, we know who we're talking about now when I say that, that they do a lot of customization to kind of meet their particular flow because that customization is necessary for that unique maybe environment, right? Because it's so normal normalized. Now, what you have to be careful there is that you don't build in bad process. So to truly yeah. do EHR optimization, you have to optimize the process first, and then you build the system to, to meet that. Um, unfortunately, a lot of lessons get learned where you optimize based on what an individual physician wants or an individual group of physicians that really builds in inefficiency. So there is a give and take there. I think that's where the reluctance comes from is it slows in their minds, it slows them down. But remember, most physicians are still working in a fee for service world, right? They're getting paid based on the number of people they see. And so when you slow down the line by making them do more steps, their pocketbook. And, and, and that's an overgeneralization. I don't want to equate that every physician's only worried about their pocketbook. They're not, but that does have an impact on the way you view what you're asked to do. Okay. So we spent a lot of time on the whole of the ship. Now let's, let's focus in on the fun stuff, which are the barnacles. Cause that's really where we're starting, where Reed and I, when the, the space we're from, cause we're, we sit in the marketing suite, right? That's where we feel like there's a lot of intersection and alignment going on here. So you mentioned one at the beginning, artificial intelligence. So we've mentioned, we've had many podcasts about this before, but I'd love to hear your thoughts from a CIO's perspective on artificial intelligence's application within the health system. Yeah. So actually, if you'll uh, listen to the Connected Hospital podcast, you'll hear a great uh, <laughs> podcast on that coming up. Um, yeah. So from an AI perspective, artificial intelligence really... Is, is kind of a buzzword that you hear thrown around a lot. And it means a lot of things to a lot of different people, depending on who you're talking to. But the way I would put it is artificial intelligence is taking a computer system that has a set number of things that it does. And instead of it just following, and I'm going to use a big word here, algorithm, it follows a set of rules. It learns based on the outcomes of those rules and it changes its rules. And so that's artificial intelligence. So in, it, it kind of learns. Let me give you two quick examples of the difference. When you talk to your phone, Siri, on your iPhone, and you say, Siri, remind me to pick up milk on the way home. That's not artificial intelligence. All that is, is something that recognizes your voice called natural language processing. And it has a set of rules that when it hears certain words, it's going to do certain things. The difference is, in artificial intelligence is it starts to learn. And now if Siri were to suddenly say to you, hey, John, it's been three days since you bought milk, you might want to pick it up. Now you're getting artificial intelligence, right? Because it's starting to think ahead and predicting for you. Another time, another word you'll hear sometimes is predictive analytics. And predictive analytics has been around in hospitals for quite a while, where we're, we're trying to predict the likelihood of someone having to come back to the hospital after they've, let's say, had a knee surgery. And that's artificial intelligence. So it's kind of a buzzword. It's not as um, it's not as sci-fi as it seems. It's not like the, the robots taking over the world. I guess they could. Um, in fact, the, uh, my interview talks a little bit about how that could happen. But AI has a lot of application because as you deal with patients and you learn outcomes, you have the opportunity to learn and modify what you do in the healthcare space. Yeah, exactly. You know, IV pumps. Well, we can talk about the security side of that you were talking about. There's some real dangers with that stuff, right? But, um, you know, an IV pump is only going to do what you tell it to do. Now, if an IV pump can start predicting that you might need it, I'll give you a quick real world example. I have, my oldest daughter is a type one diabetic and she used to wear a, a pump, you know, an insulin pump. The IV pumps, when she first went off of them and decided to move on, 
they were already coming with a sensor that you also implanted in your side that would regularly monitor your blood glucose and send that result over to the insulin pump to tell it what you should be dosed for insulin. That's the beginnings of true AI, right? Because, and then it can start learning and predicting that at this time of day, um, you tend to, your blood sugar tends to go up. So let's go ahead and ahead of time, start increasing your insulin dosage. So there's some real practical application to it. Yeah. How long before the Apple watch just does that? Yeah. yeah. Well, that's, that's coming up, right? That's pretty soon. Yeah. Isn't I it? mean, no, no kidding. It's, <laughs> you know, it's getting there. Um, that's one area that Apple is really trying to get into is a biomedicine as a wearable device, as a, as a healthcare wearable device. That, that's how they're, the direction they're going when opening up their Apple AI kit, you know, their health kit to all these developers. And they've even made a firm stake in the ground saying that's the way they want to go. Yeah. Well, you know, even a few years ago on the iPhone, they had built in some additional chips mm-hmm. into the iPhone, you know, in preparation for this. Right. Hey, we want to take a moment to thank one of our sponsors, and that's our good friends at Binary Fountain. You know, as a healthcare marketer, it's probably pretty obvious these days how much time you're spending uh, on reviews, ratings relative to hospitals, physicians, all that kind of good stuff. You know, too many of those are going unanswered, and they're certainly not being analyzed. This could be costing us new and current customers. It could be impacting our patient experience scores and potentially impacting our revenue. Luckily, our good friends at Binary Fountain have an online reputation management platform called Binary Health Analytics. If you'd like to learn more or even schedule a demo, visit them online at binaryfountain.com. That's binaryfountain.com. That's a lot about AI. I think another one that's interesting to me, just coming off of South by Southwest, is, and we saw this some last year at South by Southwest, is the the AR VR you know part of the equation. And, and immediately, what it makes me think of is is the telemedicine play, um, and so the ability you know to increase access for people or convenience, however you want to frame that, depending on where you live, I guess. All right, you know, how close are we on, on some of that stuff? Well, you're seeing some of it now, especially around robotic surgery, right? So today, for example, robotic surgery, most of the time, uh, Reed, you've experienced this you, or you've been around this. It's things that you do. A physician is there in the room with that robot, uh, is manipulating those arms and doing very fine motor skilled surgeries. Uh, the next step to that, and I've already seen some of this demoed, is somebody doing it from a across the world. They're operating on someone halfway around the world virtually. Um, So I think there's that. And then there's also um, another cool example of that is um, there is a pill that you can swallow. And, you know, one of the difficult things to do in the gastrointestinal world is to how do you get a camera into the small intestine? Pretty easy to do in the large intestine, not so easy in the small intestine, but they've made a pill that you can swallow 3D rendering of your entire colon, small and large, and then 3D renders that um, so that you can you can do a virtual fly through to look for issues without having to do an invasive procedure. Jumping back to VR, at the health system I'm at, we uh, we own a sort of a long term senior senior living center. And they've been doing, uh, they've introduced virtual reality over the last year. They're using it to actually improve the emotional well-being of the senior citizens that are there. In conjunction with behavioral health, they're really looking at geriatric and sort of the depression and, and sadness that goes along with that, you know, and, and using VR as a way is sort of like escapism, huh. right? Like give them a, a picture landscape or something of, a, of something they remember or a happier place type thing. Yeah, or like floating down the Mississippi yeah. River or, you know, or, you know, roaming around Stonehenge. They get to go experience something. Yeah. What's interesting about that, though, that's kind of a use case that really isn't connected to anything that might PHI related, right? Right. But what you're talking about is that could be directly attributed to the robotic, you know, the, the pills that you swallow, all of those mm-hmm. things. I'm now wearing my CIO hat. I'm like, security, security risk. But I think things like... Well, like what you just described, there's not a security risk, right? But when you've got all these different data points, all these different connectivity points, yeah, you've got to secure each one of those. And that's constantly on a CIO's mind. Unfortunately, that's where we sometimes run into trouble and we get viewed as a a stick in the mud. And I think it mostly becomes we know what could happen 
and we worry about that. So we're 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 kind of trained to think in worst case scenario. It's not popular, but it's the thing that I think if we didn't think that way, things would be a lot worse. Incidentally, let me just mention that VR thing. One of the areas that I'm getting a lot more involved in now is population health. When we move from what they call a fee-for-service world to a value-based care world, right, where we're we're going to be, hospitals are going to be remunerated based on how well their patients are, right, over the life cycle of that, the lifetime of that patient. That puts a different onus on a health system um, to know more than just the data that happened when they came to the hospital or when they went to the physician. You've got to know a lot more about that patient. And that that's a, they have a term they call the social determinants of health. And interestingly, the data that's contained in an EHR um, and in a physician's practice EMR record probably only gives you about a 10% view of the the overall patient's true health outcomes. The social determinants of health, which are things like their employment status, their debt levels, their access to things like you just mentioned in a nursing home environment or in a senior living environment, access to caregivers that care about them, their happiness, all of those things, that makes up another 70% of the predictability of a patient's outcome. And so all of that connectivity is starting to happen as well now. You know, there's so much more that we're gathering to truly know something about that patient. What's interesting about that, and Reed, we've talked about this before, is that we're seeing a lot of public third-party, even you know, not even healthcare-related apps that are focusing on emotional well-being, emotional intelligence. You know, there's these apps in the app store all the time that are really trying to get at it and track that with people. And I know that even you know my Fitbit, I've I've worn my Fitbit now for a couple of years and seen that evolve to have information where it's trying to get at more of those things that are not necessarily related to activity, but more related to these mental health issues. And so I think the trend is, is that we're trying to find different ways where we could actually start to track this. And that could be very valuable when you're looking at population health, couldn't it? That truly does give you a picture, right? When you, we all know this. We've had family members that go to the hospital for this or that reason, and they're doing all the right things from a clinical perspective, but they're still not happy or they're not up and about. Or you can tell that someone's heading to a bad place uh, well before it happens. Um, but if there was a way to track that, and just like on your Fitbit, how are you feeling today? You know, scale of one to 10. Well, I'm doing great. I'm an eight today. You know, it, it helps you get ahead of those issues so that you can make some good decisions about how to treat them before things get worse. Well, Facebook is all about that. So maybe we should just start partnering with them, right? So let's go back to security and privacy. How about that? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And again, we mentioned this, Chris, I think we mentioned this about every show, but uh, just because you posted on Facebook that you don't explicitly give Facebook the right to uh, own your photos, and that's not a thing. Quit posting <laughs> that right. on Facebook. I'm tired of saying this. So you mentioned you mentioned wearables. What do hospitals want out of that? Do they want those? Do they want a full with Fitbits and Apple Watches and all that stuff? So there's some value to knowing that the patient's doing it. The problem is... Can you get it quick enough? Probably about eight or nine years ago, I came across an app and I can't think of it right now. And it was, it was pretty new in the industry, but what that, what the hospitals were doing was handing out an iPod touch. So it wasn't an actual cell phone. It was just an iPod touch. They basically just said, keep this with you. And they were telling the patients when they had hip replacement, we need you to move 50 feet a day or hundred feet a day, whatever it was. And the iPod touch was able to show inactivity. If, you know, if they weren't up and moving and they would call them and say, how's everything going? Now, what they discovered, I think, was most of the time is, oh, I just forgot, left it on the bedside table. Um, (laughs) They're not actually wearing wearing it. it. But that was the first steps towards there really is some value to that. But I will tell you, I think more of that is on the physician side, you know, in the practice than it will be in the hospital. But over time, I think you'll see more of it as you go into these monitoring centralized monitoring and care management. But it does it, it does have to be real time because it doesn't do you any good to like, you know, next week you get a report for your patient from the last seven days. And it's like, well, what good's that? If at least if it's batched once a day or something, so you, you know, you have some sense. I've often told my primary care physician, I would love for you to monitor my uh, food intake on my fitness pal and monitor my ex- exercise on RunKeeper 
And if I slack off after X number of days, text me and just say, you haven't exercised because that would be a good motivator for me. Now, not everybody's going to be for that, but I think personally from a accountability perspective, it would work great. But I think then you, you get back to the idea of hours in a day and are they reimbursed for that type of activity? And again, not this, not that it's all about the money, but at some point, how important does that activity become? But someday they will be, right? When they get to value-based care, because they're going to be reimbursed on how healthy you are, not on how many stitches did they put in your knee. Exactly. So what you're painting a picture of here, John, is um, a very sophisticated technology infrastructure that it will be ready to support, you know, the capturing of all this data in near real time and being able to process that data using AI and machine learning and provide, you know, recommendations on clinical treatments, on recommendations on how we engage patients so that they're compliant, recommendations on how we can, you know, optimize let's face it, billing, you know, that sounds really tremendously complex. The CIO of today must must, you know, just I don't know. They, they, this must be going, not sure where to start. Well, and it's tough because most of the hospitals have built infrastructures over the years that were designed to be self-contained. The kind of the mentality of I need all that information, those systems in my inside my walls. And I think the only way a CIO of tomorrow is going to be successful is they're going to have to start making a deliberate move towards cloud-based um, data centers and storage. Um, yep. What? You said cloud-based. What? And, and that may be heresy <laughs> to a lot of folks, but I'm telling you, that's where it's, that's the only way you're going to be able to effectively do this. CIOs have to get out of the business of running data centers. Um, I think they have to be in the business of understanding business problems and connectivity and not in the business of owning servers and hoarding data. Hey, Chris, before we go too much further, jump into this next segment of the podcast, I did want to uh, mention and thank uh, one of our sponsors, Influence Health. Uh, you know, they've got a consumer experience platform that, that covers several things. And correct me if I'm wrong, but we've we've talked about content management systems on this podcast. Yeah, we did. What about CRMs? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we covered CRMs for sure. And then obviously each and every week we talk about digital marketing. So digital marketing systems, uh, you know, in one way, shape or form have probably been covered, right? That's right. Digital marketing systems. And I would say that we even talk about it in a way of uh, that overall digital consumer experience. Well, there you go. I, you know, I would I would recommend for anybody interested in one of those topics uh, or anything else. They've also got some complimentary solutions on their website. But but head over to their website, take a look at what they've got and what they're offering relative to CMS, CRM, digital marketing systems. Kind of how all that is woven together in what they call their consumer experience platform. Find your way over to influencehealth.com. I think that's a really good point. And um, kind of an interesting one maybe to, to pivot a little bit on and talk a little bit about, uh, obviously, most folks that listen to this podcast come from a marketing communications background. So I think this is all great context, especially for those of us that uh, have worked or do work in hospitals or physician practices, even for that matter. But how can marketing in, in that kind of ITNS world work better together? I mean, you know, marketing is generating a lot of data points at this point, right? It's not just... It's not just brand advertising, billboards, print ads, and things like that. Um, you know, we're pretty involved in the in the digital space. And Chris, you mentioned CRM earlier and some things like that. So, what you know, what should that look like, or what are some of those steps that folks could start taking? Well, and before you answer that, John, I'm just going to say, speaking from a marketer's perspective, I feel really reticent to try to get IT involved in what I'm doing from a digital marketing perspective because we say no, you know. <laughs> right. You always say no. And we're trying to engage with patients and we're, we're competing with all the retail people that are out there, you know, and if I hear another doctor knocking on my door saying, I need to compete with like an Amazon mm -hmm. or a whatever, you know, it's like we're, we're dealing with this is what we're facing up against. And, and digital marketing traditionally within hospitals has been kind of pushing the edge, wouldn't you say? Oh, I would. Um, and let me let me preface this discussion with, I don't look good in stripes. And so I don't ever want to have to wear them behind bars. Um, so <laughs> I think that is always, unfortunately, at the front and center of a CIO's mindset, which is, 
if there's a mistake that happens, who are they going to come after? And they're not going to come after the chief marketing officer. They're not going to come after anyone else. They're going to come to the CIO and say, why didn't you protect it well enough? It's kind of that old adage of like, nobody got fired for buying IBM. You're mitigating risk at some point. Right. Exactly. But with that said, for any any CIOs that are out there listening to me, you understand exactly what I meant by that. Um, I will say this. I think that we've got to become a lot more accepting of some risk if you're willing to put in some mitigation strategies to try to avoid things happening. The reality is today, it's, you know, you've heard this before. It's not an if, it's a when. We can't stay ahead of the bad actors. So the best you can do is try to put in the best mitigation strategies you can without turning off the, the faucet and marketing department. No, I'm a big believer in the marketing department because I understand that that's what feeds a hospital. And so I think we've got to learn how to better integrate healthcare data the appropriate healthcare data with that marketing department so they can put out the right marketing campaigns. They can reach out to the right patients. That's where some of the CRM packages today are doing a better job. They're starting to blend those two sets of data without blending everything, right? There's no reason for a CRM to have everything about a patient, but there's probably a few things they do need to know. And so I think you've just got to get better at, at working together. What I would tell a marketing off, chief marketing officer or somebody in the marketing area is if you can approach IT with the understanding that they are naturally going to be nervous about someone getting the data and tell them that you understand that and you want to do everything you can to make sure that it's as minimal amount of clinical information as possible and that you're on the same team, that goes a long way. Because I think sometimes, um, and it's just a, I don't know if it's natural to IT people, but they start to think that everybody else is like living the wild west and we're the ones who are responsible. <laughs> we're like the adult in the room or something. You're just babysitting all these people running around wanting to. Come, unfortunately, it comes across as arrogant and, and uh, it comes across like, you know, you're the, the thing that stops anything from happening. Um, and it's just not true. Great discussion. Um, I think there is uh, many more things that we could key off of. And for those that are interested, John was on episode 48 uh, about ransomware. So you can go back and listen to that as well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So exactly. it was not 348B. Exactly. Okay. <laughs> touch point, touch counterpoint. There are two sides to every story. Ready, fight! Okay, this is the touch point, touch counterpoint part of the podcast. And since we have John here today with us, I guess it's going to be touch point, touch counterpoint, touch counter counterpoint. Reed, how do you feel about that? <laughs> no, we already don't know the name of this segment. And so to throw another component into the naming of the segment. Anyway, no, it, it'll be good. It'll be good. All right. So uh, we've got John, like you said, and we're talking about uh, the CIO slash CMO worlds colliding, so to speak. Um, and, and John, you had, you had a good scenario, uh, for this. So what, what are you thinking? Yeah. All right. So here's what I want you two to talk about. Um, you can only do one. Do you do security or privacy? Which one sends you to jail? That's yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Reed, I'm picking security. Forget about privacy. Privacy doesn't really matter. And in this day and age, people are becoming more and more used to giving up their privacy. I mean, come on, face it. Let's look what's in the news lately with uh, Facebook. You know, they, sure, it's shocking that 50 million records got compromised, but yeah, no, no one's really caring about that. Security is really what's most important. Um, you you want to keep the bad guys away because you know the last thing I want to have as an as a patient and as an employee of a hospital, I don't want someone locking up the health system, the the data system, so that I can't get you know treated well or I can't get my day, my job done right. Privacy, bleh, whatever. <laughs> okay, that's a pretty good argument. Okay, no, I mean I, I get it, I get it, I get it. Uh, so from though from a privacy standpoint, though, I feel like so I feel like they're two sides of the same coin, right? 
But I think from a privacy standpoint, I think that's more important because that's more of your, uh, your proactive uh, side of the equation. So I feel like we can head off more negative encounters, more negative opportunities if we train and teach our people how to deal with data, how to, how to move stuff around, uh, what's important, what's not important, what is PHI, et cetera. Because, again, you're not going to be able to keep out all of the bad guys so, I mean, as long as you're doing something there, I think you, you, with a more proactive strategy on the privacy side of the equation, you're going to have a bigger impact. Now, now Reed did throw out some big words like proactive strategy, Chris. I, I have <laughs> to say that was pretty good. That was pretty good. That was pretty good. But I think what you're arguing, Reed, is not necessarily privacy. What you're arguing is actually security. Frankly, what you're doing is you're saying teaching people to be more secure with what they're doing. Privacy is about, you know, is, is about the, that individual record. Okay, I get it. We need to be private about maybe their credit card information, but who really cares about their colonoscopy? Or John, you even mentioned earlier on in this episode that, you know, privacy became kind of a big deal around the AIDS epidemic. Mm-hmm. Well, that's not that's not so much of a, you know, a thing nowadays. And so I really think that when, when we're talking about privacy, it's the lesser uh, uh, important topic here. Security, if you have to, if you have to pick Sophie's choice, security all the way, because, you know, without your, your systems, privacy doesn't even matter because you can't even get to that data. Yeah, you're entirely wrong. So, I think from, uh, pri- privacy, so what's most important to people? Vanity, right? So <laughs> privacy is going to be that thing where, you know, we're not accidentally disclosing to family members, friends, whoever, you know, things like that they were on the website looking at certain, you know, certain procedures maybe that they haven't shared publicly yet or that uh, they came in and had certain tests done that maybe they don't want their employer knowing about or whatever it is, you know, that I feel like impacts people in their real life, whereas the security side of the equation is somebody else's problem, and that, that kind of falls on the hospital side of the equation. This is how we make sure that we're treating from a, a patient experience perspective. So, John, you heard us argue both sides. You are the moderator and the tiebreaker here. It's your turn to weigh in. Well, you know, I got to say, um, Chris, you you sound like you were an IT guy at one point because you really came down on the security <laughs> side. Reed, um, Reed, you you definitely hit the touchy feely side for sure. So I know you're a marketing guy, but I'll I'll have to kind of call this one a draw. You know, I I I tell you, I don't know you can have one without the other. Um, so I I think I kind of set you guys up on this one. I don't know that you could win. Well, I mean, like, like I said, I, I think it really is two sides of the same coin. And I think some of it blurs to some degree that I'm not sure it's really a straightforward answer of, of what you're talking about based on the initiative or, or the initiative has both things. Now, if you would have thrown in processing claims, I would have known which one, which would have <laughs> won. <laughs> processing claims wins. always. <laughs> Chris, good news. The healthcare industry now has its own domain name. What? Absolutely. Everybody knows that organizations have .org, education has .edu. Well, now .health is available and quickly becoming the home for all health-related content online. And listeners to our podcast can visit get.health slash touchpoint. Visit get.health slash touchpoint now. All right, wrapping up episode 59 with Chris, as always, and our special guest, John Mason. Uh, Again, a special plug for The Connected Hospital. It will be a new podcast on uh, the Touchpoint Media Network. So more to come on that, but you can find out about that show and all the others over at touchpoint.health. I know, John, you've had a couple of uh, recordings, a couple of interviews you've done, and so it sounds like that's going to be a a fun show that will be coming out here soon. I think it is. So I'm looking forward and hopefully people come out and check it out. Well, I'm going to listen to it. That's for sure. Absolutely. And we'll, we'll tease it here, obviously, and have uh, links and all that kind of good stuff for everybody. Uh, but look for that in the next uh, in the next week or two. So recommendations. Actually, before we get to recommendations, anybody go anywhere, do anything fun? Chris, you and I will be at the Forums for Healthcare Strategists the end of April. 
Mm-hmm. It's weird to say these dates because it's literally through like the first of May or that's something. That's right. <laughs> so that's right. The the end of April, first of May. Uh, we'll be doing that. I'll be up at the Hospital Association of Pennsylvania uh, mid-April. I got a Shushmid webinar that I'm doing in April uh, around uh, the new digital front door. So I'll be speaking with a couple of people from a hospital system as well as our friends over at Binary Fountain. I just got back from Hymns out in Las Vegas, but I may be at the Texas Hymns in April. So I will uh, post some stuff out on LinkedIn if I'm going to be there. I'd love to meet with anybody that wants to connect up, any of those chief marketing officers that want to talk to a CIO that loves them. There you go. There you go. That's <laughs> awesome. Uh, okay. Recommendations, Chris, what do you got? Today, I'm going to recommend 1.5 speed. Oh, and wow. what I mean by that is every podcast, uh, every podcast player that you may have, and maybe your, you know, your native iPhone podcast player or whatever system it is, they have that little option where you can actually play your podcast back at variable speeds. And, you know, I listen to a lot of podcasts, Reed. I know you do, and, and John, you do too. So definitely you can listen to your podcast at 1.5 speed. You gain a little bit of time, you cover ground, and uh, it doesn't sound like they're chipmunks talking to one another. So that's my recommendation. Very good. That's very pretty good. cool. Uh, John? Yeah, so a couple things. Um, just uh, these are, I hope it can be on whatever. Interesting article in Wired Magazine that just came out. If you want to stay healthy on your flight, which I was not after my last flight to Hims, uh, it says stay out of the aisle. Uh, so go out to Wired Magazine and check that out. That'd be an interesting read. Stay out of the aisle. I don't know if I can do that. I- I've got to sit on the aisle. Now you know why you're getting a head cold all the time. Huh. Other thing I was just going to say is if you go find me on LinkedIn, I would love John T. Mason on LinkedIn. I would love to connect with you. And um, if you got questions, I, I'm pretty responsive on that. I love to talk with folks. So uh, feel free to connect with me. And, and if you got other questions, I'm happy to, to chat with you and get to know you. Cool. And we'll have a link to that in the show notes as well. My recommendation is uh, a pair of sunglasses. I've actually had these for quite some time and they've held up well. They are a pair of Oakley's. And it's the, let's see, the Holbrook model. H-O-L-B-R-O-K, Holbrook model. These happen to be translucent uh, blue color because they run cell. I like them. They fit well. They're durable. Uh, I wear them outside all the time. Leave them in the car. Can you wear them at night? I guess you could. Do you wear your sunglasses at night? No. Uh, See, now I'm showing my age. No, no, I got it. I got it. Corey Hart. Come on. We got it. There you go. There you go. Well, cool. Well, uh, great episode. Uh, really enjoyed having uh, John on. Absolutely. Really yeah, guys, thanks for inviting me. This was fun. This was yeah, a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun. So for John Mason, Chris Boyer, and Reed Smith, we'll see you next time. 